So welcome to uh, a breakout about death. A great way to start the day. Uh, it's really gonna set the tone for the rest of your uh, experience, which I'm excited about. Um, no better thing than to contemplate your own death uh, before lunch. So we're gonna open with a prayer, so let us pray. O oh God, whose days are without end and whose mercies cannot be numbered, make us, we pray, deeply aware of the shortness and uncertainty of human life. And let your Holy Spirit lead us in holiness and righteousness all our days, that when we shall have served you in our generation, we may be gathered to our ancestors, having the testimony of a good conscience, in the communion of the Catholic Church, in the confidence of a certain faith, in the comfort of a religious and holy hope, in favor with you, our God, and in perfect charity with the world. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we are all going to die. Hopefully this is not news to you. We of course know it to be true, intellectually and experientially. We know that everyone dies in the end. It's how we interact with this fact that makes all the difference. So in this talk today, uh, for the first part of our time, we're gonna consider where we are with death in 2019. We're gonna consider what Jesus has to say about death in the afterlife, and we'll consider what all of this means for how we live our lives. I should pause here before we get too deep and tell you a bit of my story. In particular, I should tell you why I'm so fascinated with the topic of death. To borrow a phrase, I grew up acquainted with grief. My mother died when I was eight, all of my grandparents were dead by the time I was 16, and my father died five years ago this week, actually. I've seen death up close in my family and during my ministry, and I've wrestled with my own grief and the grief of others for a long time. On top of all of that, and this may be the reason you came, I survived a near-death experience. So let me take you back to 18-year-old Connor. That's my senior portrait. I'm not kidding. I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, and we had a family friend who was a beach uh, wedding photographer who offered to do my senior portraits for free. Uh, just look at how the wave is majestically crashing. If you notice, I'm not wearing shoes. Those are linen pants. There's a set of these pictures that has me holding my guitar on my back as I'm walking down the beach. There's no point to this picture other than it's embarrassing and funny, um, but that's 18-year-old Connor. So I went to college, I grew up in Alabama, I went to college up in Virginia at James Madison University. Thank you, is there an alumni? Hey, go Dukes. Division II national champions. So on a brisk February day, my freshman year of college, I went to the university gym to work out with my roommates. And after lifting weights, I stepped onto the indoor track and began to jog. And I made it around the track about once and got halfway through and something went wrong. The color left my face and my breathing grew shallow and frantic 
and I lost balance and soon collapsed on the track in sudden cardiac arrest. Now there was a nursing student stretching next to the track and listening to music through her headphones. And for some reason, over the melody of her music, she heard another student say, is he okay? And she tells the story, uh, if you don't know JMU, there's a lot of New Jersey folks who come. So she said it was a Jersey girl accent. So it's more like, oh my God, is he okay? For some reason, she heard it and she pulled out her earphones, turned around and saw me lying face down on the track, turning blue. So she immediately ran to my side to begin CPR. Her memory of the moment centers around the crowd that gathered around me and her efforts to flip my body over to start CPR. She says no one offered to help. So she was um, kind of a small person uh, and I was bigger at that time and she struggled to flip me over. No one offering to help, everyone standing frozen. Uh, and eventually she got me over on the second try. And she began chest compressions and rescue breathing. And I should pause here to say I met this woman. Uh, this is over 10 years ago that this happened. I haven't seen her since then. Uh, but now I'm a school chaplain at an Episcopal school in Stanton, Virginia. And we had a fundraiser uh, in the fall. And they announced that I was the new chaplain, Connor Gwynn. Uh, we're so excited to have him. And afterwards, she came up to me and her adopted sister goes to the school, and she just happened to be at the fundraiser, uh, and my wife was there, and our newborn daughter was there. Uh, so we had this moment where my wife and daughter got to meet the woman that literally saved my life. Um, so all of this is her story of what happened. So she started rescue breathing. A gym employee was walking by to leave that day, noticed the commotion, and started the gym's emergency protocol. Uh, they alternated doing chest compressions and rescue breathing. Sarah is her name. She actually apologized to me when I saw her in the fall for making me throw up, which is what happens when you get uh, rescued. I said, it's okay. Um, I don't mind. Uh, so they were doing chest compressions. The paramedics arrived really quickly, uh, and they used their defibrillator to shock my heart three times uh, and then restored a normal rhythm. So I was still unresponsive. When I got to the hospital in Harrisonburg, Virginia, so the doctors put me in uh, a therapeutic hyperthermia. So my body was a deep blue as they were cooling me down. I was unconscious. They were not really sure of what had happened, why this had happened. Uh, they didn't know how long my brain had been without oxygen. They didn't know if I would wake up. And if I did wake up, they didn't know what I would be like. Uh, they just weren't sure of anything. And so they started planning to fly me to UVA's hospital uh, where the experts could do more work. And then late on the fourth night, I woke up. My dad and stepmom were there at the time uh, and they say that I woke up and looked at them and said, hey, what are y'all doing here? And it was fine. I don't remember that, I don't remember waking up. My memory happens two weeks later when I woke up at UVA uh, with a defibrillator implanted in my chest and no memory of what had happened. I didn't know why I was there, didn't know I'd gone to the gym, didn't know why my chest hurt, why my arm was in a sling, uh, didn't know any of it. So my story is a bit of a bomb, right? It's hard to tell that at dinner uh, because the conversation suddenly becomes 
focused on that story. Um, I enjoy talking about it, but it makes people a little uncomfortable. Um, but a trend started happening as soon as uh, I got better and started telling the story. The big question started coming up. Did I see anything? Where did I go? What was it like? Even people who were not outwardly religious at all were suddenly very concerned with what heaven was like if I saw it. Was someone there? Was it scary? What do you remember? It comes down to the big question, is there something more? Is this it? And it's not hard to understand their longing. We all know that life is short. We all know that we're going to die. And we want there to be more. At the very least, we want to know what happens. And the trouble is, this is the one thing we cannot know. By definition, we cannot know what happens after we die, until we die. And that infuriates us, because we want to know. We have to know. And so the image that I like to use is that it's like we're in an art gallery. And all of the world's most priceless pieces of art are all around us. And on the back wall of the gallery, there's a door that says, do not enter. And it's locked. And there we all are in the gallery, gathered around the door, debating what's behind it. Everything else is around us, and we're missing it, because we're standing at a door that we can't see behind. Now, of course, most people don't want to talk about death at all. We live in a death-denying culture. Youth is heralded as a primary virtue, and death is treated as a disease, as a failure of doctors, as an uh, impossible thing that happens to everyone. Right? It's guaranteed to happen, and yet it's this impossibility. We celebrate life instead of having funerals. On the Mockingcast yesterday, they talked about this. We can't acknowledge that someone's gone. With transcendence vacuumed out of our culture and our society, the content of your life, your performance, becomes the focus. As a side note, that could be a whole other talk. There's this crazy thing happening right now with all of this talk on extending the lifespan. Have you heard this? A lot of Silicon Valley people are investing a ton of money in making sure they live a really long time. And I heard on two podcasts that I listened to this week a serious, unironic conversation about people living to 200. One, there's this meditation teacher was talking and the guy interviewing him said, uh, how long do you want to live? And luckily the meditation teacher said, I'm ready to go right now, I don't want to live too long. But then he asked the host and the host, again, unironically said, I'm guessing I'll live to about 180, maybe 200. That's wild. But we'll put that aside because that's a whole other talk about extending life. But in our secular postmodern age, we operate between two competing views of death. If we talk about death at all, it's generally with these two views. 
and they're what I call elimination and destination. So elimination is all those who believe that nothing happens after death. That when your heart stops beating, your life is over, done, finished, that's it. For those who believe in elimination, the focus is shifted to maximize the experience of your life. Or like those podcasts, yes, the years of your life. The poet Aubrey Drake Graham, also known as Drake, summarized this worldview with his phrase YOLO. You only live once. If you only live once, you better live it up, maximize it. On a more serious note, in recent years, Stoic philosophy has uh, come back with a vengeance. And the Latin phrase memento mori, which means remember your death, is back in fashion. You can buy a coin to carry in your pocket to remind yourself that you will die. The website for this coin quotes the Stoic philosopher Seneca who says, let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. So if this is all there is, according to this worldview, then you should maximize your efforts to accomplish what you want. You should hustle, you should grind, you should work hard because when your ticket is punched at the end of life, that's it, it's over. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what I call destination, or destinationism. Those who believe that this life is only the preamble to another existence, another world, another plane of being. We've seen a massive proliferation of books recently. The last 10 years, they've kind of blown up. Uh, they talk about this. Where are we going? What's it like? You have heaven is for real, which I don't know if you saw the news, but it turns out it was a hoax. The parents made up the story, told the kid to say that he saw the things that he saw. It's not surprising, unfortunately. Um, but we have books like that. We have Proof of Heaven and its sequel, Map of Heaven. I could spend the entire time listing all of the books that have come out recently. The list is never-ending. From serious accounts like these to comedies like The Good Place, people, it seems, are very concerned with what happens next. And most of these books tell a similar story of a white light, perfect peace, reunions with dead relatives and loved ones. These stories paint a picture of an Oz-like wonderland that awaits those who chose the right yellow brick road in life. I should clarify, most of these stories don't have anything to do with choosing the right yellow brick road. It's just assumed when you die, you wake up in Oz, and everyone's there. You may notice that I didn't call this the Christian view of death, or the afterlife, because it's not. It has Christian elements, for sure. Often these books take on a lot of vocabulary from uh, the Christian story. But these tales of heaven owe more to Dante and John Milton than they do to Jesus. So what is the Christian view? I come back to the question that's generally helpful in theological debates. What did Jesus say? 
about this? What did Jesus say? What did he do that can help us understand this? The short answer is not much. He doesn't describe in details uh, what happens after we die. He doesn't give us a map of heaven, but I'm glad the doctor did write that book. Give us more details. So he tells a few parables about a big party, an unquenchable fire, a lot of gnashing of teeth. He says that we'll be raised in our bodies on the last day, but he doesn't give a ton of details. But through his teaching and his life, a third way of understanding death and the afterlife, and most importantly, I think, grief, emerges. The truth is that both sides, elimination and destination, are right. When we die, we die. And there is so much more. So for the sake of this presentation, I want to focus on one story from the life of Jesus. In John's Gospel, we read that a good friend of Jesus's has died. The story of Lazarus. When Jesus arrives in the village and is greeted by the family of the dead man, Jesus responds. His response can tell us a lot about what Jesus saw uh, when he encountered death and grief. So I actually have a video clip of Jesus's response, Jesus's grief. Are you ready? Shelby was right. This is a brown football. Oh, oh honey, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can jog all the way to Texas and back. But my daughter can't. She never could. God, I'm so mad. I don't know what to do. I want to know why. I want to know why Shelby's life is over. I want to know how that baby will ever know how wonderful his mother was. Will he ever know what she went through for him? Oh, God, I want to know why. Why? Lord, I wish I could understand. No. No, no, it's not supposed to happen this way. I'm supposed to go first. I've always been ready to go first. I, I don't think I can take this. I, I don't think I can take this. I, I just want to hit somebody until they feel as bad as I do. I just want to hit something. I want to hit it hard. Here, hit this. Go ahead, Malin, slopper. Are you crazy? Hannah, are you high, Clary? Clary, have you lost your mind? We'll sell t-shirts saying I slapped Weezer Boudreau. Hannah! Miss Clary, enough! Weezer, this is your chance to do something for your fellow man. Oh. Knock her lights out, Malia. Let go of me! Malia, you just missed a chance of a lifetime. Half a chickapin parish will give the eye teeth to take a whack of Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. <laughs> you are a pig from hell. <laughs> Weezer, don't leave. Weezer, Weezer, I was just kidding. Come back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very Christian thing to do. Oh, 
down, you gotta lighten up. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't Jesus. That was steel magnolias. And Malin Eatonton uh, is not Jesus. But in the story, we see a similar reaction from Jesus, right? It's the famous verse, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus weeps. Jesus grieves. He grieves in response to the death of Lazarus and to the grief of his friends. He doesn't offer platitudes. He doesn't say that heaven needed another angel. He doesn't start planning a celebration of life for good old Lazarus. He weeps. Jesus weeps because death was not God's original intention for the world. A number of biblical authors communicate this truth, that death is an enemy. Death is opposed to the life-giving nature of God. Death is an anomaly brought about by sin. The Apostle Paul says, we heard this on Easter, that on the last day, at the end of time, the last enemy, death, will be defeated. So what are we to do now? How are Christians to interact with death and grief? That's the focus of these last few minutes. So the first thing that we need to do is not to put our heads in the sand and pretend that death isn't real. And this is the downfall of the destination thinkers. The people who are so uncomfortable, often with their own grief, that they try to put a rosy uh, picture on people's death, right? That heaven needs another angel. I said it jokingly, but I think we've all heard it. People have actually said that to grieving people. And you can leave aside for a moment the fact that humans don't become angels. They're different species, that's a different thing. Uh, but it's just not helpful, right? Heaven needed another angel. No, I need them here. I don't care that heaven needed another angel. We see it too. They're in a better place. Again, I don't care. I want them here. The better place is next to me. So the Christian response is to not say any of those things. To not put our heads in the sand and act like uh, the promise of resurrection means that everything's fine and dandy when people die. Jesus wept. What we're supposed to do, I think, is to grieve. To actually grieve. And to grieve well. Paul says that death has lost its sting, which is true. Death has lost the sting of punishment. But the sadness and the loss that we feel is real. It's real. And the truth, in my view, is that we're grieving all the time. All of us are grieving all the time. We act like it's a weird thing that happens, you know, only when someone dies. And then we take those five stages of grief and make it seem like once I get through those, then I'm good. Right? Once I've accepted it, I can move on. But I think the human condition is one of grief. I think it's partly why you came to a talk about death 
at 10.45 on the morning, right? You've got some grief. There's something happening or something has happened and you're grieving. So grief is the emotional reaction to loss or change. And so using that definition, I submit that we're all grieving all the time. When I was a hospital chaplain in seminary, I'm a visual learner, so I came up with a diagram that I thought was helpful. <laughs> she never could. That's enough from Malin. That is a really good clip just to watch over and over again. Uh, it's very cathartic if you need it. This is the diagram that I drew in seminary to help me understand grief. So grief happens anytime our plans for our life, our expectations, our hopes are interrupted. The interruption can be anything from death, to traffic, to canceled plans. Grief happens when we find ourselves at this fracture point. We find ourselves there looking at what can never be now. So that's depicted by the dotted line. It's our hopes, our expectations that now can never happen. The relationship that will never be whole again, the person we will never see again, the outcome that can never occur. And so we stand at that fracture point, banging our fists on the door, trying our best to go down that path, to continue but the way is shut. And we find ourselves on a new path. And this is where grace comes in. I had grace in the title intentionally. It wasn't just to attract all the mockingbird people uh, to my talk. I told you earlier I believe grace to be the basic human condition, which is a really uh, powerful thing to say and just move on. Right, I was bold to say that, so I want to unpack it just a little bit. From the moment that Adam and Eve packed their leaves and headed east of Eden, they were grieving. They were grieving the loss of the garden. They were grieving the loss of intimacy with God. From that first day, those first moments of life post-Eden, humanity has been grieving what we had and what we lost. We've been standing looking at where we thought life could go from a new vantage point, from where we actually are. Youth pastors with frosted tips will tell you that you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. That's actually Chad Kroger, the uh, lead singer of Nickelback. But I thought he'd fit in uh, as the frosted tip youth pastor. So you've probably heard that, right? You have a God-shaped hole. And say what you will about the image. Say what you will about uh, the youth pastor that may have said that to you. But I think it gets close to describing what I'm talking about with grief. When someone we love dies, they don't just disappear, right? It's the downside of the elimination uh, idea. When people die, they're not gone. There's a shadow or an outline of that person that's superimposed on everything. So we find ourselves, going back to that uh, 
diagram walking a new path, one without the person or the marriage or the job or whatever it was that we've lost. And they're still with us. We can still see the dotted line. We can still see what we hoped would happen. And so grace comes in right in that moment. Because grace is God meeting us where we actually are and not where we hoped we would be. Not where we wish we were. We so often want to live in the should, where we should be, what should be happening. But we live here and now, after the interruption of grief, after the death, after the firing, after the fire. We live here and now. We spend a lot of time standing at that locked door, banging our fists, debating what comes next. We spend a lot of time dreaming of a different world where things are different where we are different. We project this different world in a million different ways, right? The image we want people to see, who we wish we were instead of who we actually are. The life we're living instead of the life we wish we were living. God meets us there in reality. So the poet David White wrote some beautiful lines that I think sum this up. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. We live in this world. The Christian view is to accept that we live in this world, this world that is marked by sin and death this world that is full of grief-stricken souls, this world where we contend daily with death, where we die every day, as Paul said. We live in this world that is passing away all around us. But our Lord is not of this world. He is not of this world. And he comes to tell us of the world that is coming the place he is preparing for us. He comes to tell us that we've been set free. At the last day when the trumpet sounds and the last enemy is defeated, he tells us of that day. And so we're caught in the already and not yet. Until that day, we live here and we die. And so grace is God's meeting us in this world right where we are. Grace is Jesus weeping and sharing grief with his friends. I don't know for sure what happens after we die. That's the answer to the big question. It may be the only reason you're listening to me is to hear what I saw. And I didn't see anything. I don't remember, at least. I don't know what happens after we die. And so I'm sorry if you came to hear more detailed information. There's some books I can recommend that have proof and maps and all the details you could ever want. What I can tell you 
is that when we die, we die. That death is the end of our life. And that there is so much more. And that on the last day, we will be resurrected. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my awaking, he will raise me up, and in my body I shall see God. I myself shall see, and my eyes behold him, who is my friend and not a stranger. I'd like to close with a prayer. Almighty God, we lift up all those who have died, all those who we love and see no more, all those who have gone beyond the veil, all those we name at this time. Pam and John. Lord Jesus Christ, by your death, you took away the sting of death. Grant us, your servants, so to follow in faith where you have led the way, that we may at length fall asleep peacefully in you and wake up in your likeness. For your tender mercy's sake. Amen. Thank you very much.